continue our study through the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And this morning we'll be looking at uh, a message entitled Guilty as Charged. It's uh, part one of two parts probably. So we'll finish the rest of it next week. But I just want to read our text for us. Last week we dropped off there at verse 8 in Romans chapter 3. And so we want to pick it up at Romans chapter 3 verse 9. And I'll read down through uh, verse uh, 20 there. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When we stop and we think of that passage of Scripture, all of us as believers are probably very, very familiar with this. We've studied it. We've looked at it. We've probably quoted it to people when we're sharing the gospel. And it's really the core of the gospel that we're going to be looking at the next couple weeks together. And at the center of the gospel is the very fact that we are guilty. Guilty as charged. We don't like to think that way. We like to think that we're pretty good. I I remember before I became a Christian, uh, the night that the pastor was meeting with me, he turned to this passage and he kept on having me read verse 12 over and over and over again, especially the last part, because I kept on appealing to him, I'm not like my brothers, I'm not like my brothers. And he said, that's not the standard. What does that say? It says, no one does good. What do you think no one means? You don't have to be a Greek scholar to figure out no one means no one. That includes you. But I couldn't get it through my head. And it wasn't until... The grace that we've sung about here this morning touched my heart and God opened my eyes to the glorious gospel of Christ and I realized that I am guilty as charged. A lot of people have different ideas about guilt. It's it's one of those things that you don't like to live with but you can't live without. Kind of like pain. Do you ever thank God for pain? Some of you older folks are going, no, not recently. You know, I went to a therapist on last uh, Thursday for my neck. And uh, 
put me through all this stuff and did some traction on it. I'm going again, I think, Monday or Tuesday of this next week and um, trying to figure out what's, what's wrong, why it's so tense. And I, I was sitting there in his office, and he said, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is your pain? And I said, that doesn't work with me. I, I mean, I can take a lot of pain. He goes, well, just, you know, 1 to 10. And so I'm thinking, I don't want to say too much because then, you know, who knows what they're going to do. But I don't want to say too little. So I just kind of said, eh, maybe a five. I don't know. I said, but I don't do well on that scale because what is a five to me probably isn't a five to somebody else. And so I remember sitting there, though, thinking, you know what? It's, and he started moving my neck and I go, now that hurts. That hurts. That's, that's painful. What you're doing right now is painful. And I remember thinking, okay, that's, that's a blessing from God. Pain is a blessing from God. If we didn't have pain, there'd be no way to understand that there was something wrong with our body. That's one of the major things that lepers have a problem with. They, their, their appendages grow numb. And so they end up, you know, burning them or cutting them. They don't even realize it. They get infected. They end up falling off. They still don't even know it. It's because the nerve tissues damage to the point where they don't feel pain. Thank God for pain. Well, also, thank God for guilt. If it wasn't for guilt, beloved, we wouldn't have any sense of wrongdoing before God. Not everybody takes that mentality. Ann Landers had an article and she wrote this, one of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy-consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day, your week, your life if you let it. She went on in her little article, she never gave an answer how to get rid of the guilt. (laughs) See, but no matter how often we think that, that guilt is a bad thing, God is saying, no, it's something that I'm allowing you to experience and it's a gift for me. Why do we not embrace guilt? I'll tell you, it's, it's pretty simple. Because we don't like to have pointed out to us that we're doing something wrong. <laughs> Those of you who are married know, know what I'm talking about. You know, when your spouse starts pointing out something that maybe you're not doing correctly or you're doing wrong, you don't sit there at their feet and go, tell me more, this is such a blessing. No. Yeah, 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 I heard it before. I just, don't tell me what you think you are. Why are you telling me this? You get frustrated. You don't want to hear it. You don't want someone else to point out what you're doing wrong. And no matter how often we tell ourselves that we're not doing something wrong, trust me, we are. Because we're guilty. We face the fact that we do evil things. We do unrighteous things. And as a result of those things, we feel guilt. Whether it's in thought, word, or deed. We all do them because none of, nobody here is perfect. Nobody. And when you do something wrong in God's sight, he allows us to experience something called guilt. Guilt does a lot of things to people. Guilt can drive somebody to drink uncontrollably. Guilt can drive somebody to be addicted to alcohol. Guilt can drive you into loneliness, into despair, even into insanity, suicide. 
And the answer to most people's dealing with guilt is, well, you go see the, the psychiatrist. You go see the psychologist. You go see a shrink. And they'll explain to you why you're guilty. You're not guilty because you've done anything wrong. You're guilty because maybe the way the parents raised you. Or maybe it's your boss's fault. Or maybe it's somebody else's fault. And when you try to pass your guilt onto somebody else, what happens? Inevitably, it just increases the guilt. (laughs) Because you know in your heart, wait a minute, I've got to step up and take responsibility here. So instead of just being guilty for what they've done, now they're guilty for passing it off onto somebody else. When we sin, the result is guilt. If we could get rid of it, we would, but there's no way to. Heard this morning that NASCAR driver last night killed another driver on a track. Most likely accidental. They were on a dirt track, and I think it was Tony Stewart, right? Hit the other guy, young kid, I think he's 20 or 22. And the cars continued to go around the track, and this guy crashed. Well, he was so ticked off, he got out of his car. And when Tony Stewart was coming around, he ran toward his car. Not a real bright thing to do. Tony Stewart's car. I mean, they're on a dirt track. It's one of those dirt, you know, where the kind of the rear end goes out when they're going around. Well, obviously, if you're going to swerve or wave to hit somebody, maybe your rear ends. And he ran the guy over at high speed. Videos on YouTube. It's sad. Killed instantly. I watched this morning on the news, and I don't know if he's actually going to do this or not, but there's a big race today, NASCAR race. And his spokespeople were saying, oh, no, he's going to race. It's business as usual. I thought, wow, that's kind of tough. I wonder if he's feeling any guilt. Maybe he thought he was just going to scare the guy. Maybe his emotions got a little out of control. Maybe it was purely an accident. Maybe it was totally the other guy's fault. The fact is, somebody's dead. Somebody's lives are changed forever. A family's lives are changed forever because of some silly race. Guilt does all kinds of things. But we can't just blame the other person all the time. And so in the epistle of Romans here, we've been studying as Paul throughout this marvelous epistle is committed to presenting the gospel of Christ. He says that in chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But you know what? Before he can give the remedy for the sin that we have, he has to give the disease. You don't just go to the doctor and he examines you and say, here, here, you know what? Just go get this prescription. You'll be fine. What's your question going to be? Well, what's wrong with me? I'm not just going to take pills. Tell me what's wrong. You want to know the diagnosis. That's what Paul's doing here. And he began in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through up until chapter 3, verse 19. 
And he basically openly condemns every human being who's ever lived on the face of the earth. And he's basically saying his message is all are guilty before God. That's the message. And that's what it says there at the end of verse 19. He sums up everything that's gone before. Every mouth is stopped, he says. In other words, you can't say, not me. Well, no, he's included everybody. There's no defense. There's nothing you can say at this point that will excuse you from the guilt of sin. There's no way to get out of it. There's no self-justifying words. So he says, every mouth is stopped and all the world is guilty before God. See, that's the message of the gospel. That's intrinsic in the gospel. If we leave that part out, then the gospel is not the gospel, beloved. That is what the gospel first has to say to a man or a woman or a child. Is that, you know what, you're guilty before God. We don't exist as Christians here on this earth to go around and just tell everybody to be happy in Jesus and everybody's okay, you're okay, I'm okay, everybody's okay. Just, just come to church, you'll be okay. Just get baptized, you'll be okay. Just read your Bible, you'll be okay. God doesn't really look at you as sinners. He loves you. God is love. That's the message we hear taught in so many of our churches today. We're not here to say that. We're not here to bring that message to the ear of the sinner. We're here to say, you know what? You're a sinner. Deal with it. Oh, you can't? Well, guess what? I got some good news. I know somebody that can. How convenient. We're here to tell people that they have real guilt before God and that they're under His wrath, that they're under His condemnation. And that's what we've been seeing in these first three chapters of Romans. Over and over, Paul has just reiterated, nope, you're under sin, you're under sin. I don't care if you're Jew, Greek, whatever, pagan, you're all under sin. And we find it hard to admit that. Even as Christians, we find it hard to admit that. Because we like to present ourselves as good people. Dr. Barnhouse wrote this. It is only stubborn self-pride that keeps man from the confession to God that would bring release. But that way he refuses to take And I love this illustration. Man stands before God today like a little boy who swears with crying and tears that he has not been anywhere near the jam jar. And who with an air of outraged innocence pleads the justice of his position in total ignorance of the fact that a good-sized spoonful of jam has fallen upon his shirt under his chin and is plainly visible to all but himself. Isn't that a great illustration? 
That's the sinner. No, no, it's the other guy. It's the other guy. It's not me. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. See, Paul knows the tendency to resist the reality of our sinfulness. And so he sums it up here in this portion of Scripture. He wants to make one final strong statement about the total sinfulness of man. And up to this point, he's argued from a lot of different angles. He's argued from creation. He's argued from the testimony of creation. He says that. He's argued from the testimony of history, of reason, logic, conscience. But now he drives the final nail in the coffin. Because you know what? He, he argues from Scripture. He argues from the very Word of God. And that's what he does here in chapter 3. I mean, if you look at our history, obviously man is sinful. You don't have to look far at that. If you look at reason, we can see that we're sinful. Conscience. All those things. And those are all true. But he says, that's not good enough. I want you to hear it from the mouth of God, in the word of God. The ultimate testimony. And so beginning in verse 10 and running down through verse 18, he quotes the Old Testament. That's why he says there in verse 9 or verse uh, 10, as it is written, he starts. John MacArthur, in his message, he says that Paul is bringing God into the courtroom to give testimony to the sinfulness of man. Can you imagine that? I mean, just imagine a courtroom setting, and you're sitting there as a defendant saying you're not a sinner. And down the aisle comes God, and he takes his place up in the booth. They swear him in. Or if he'd say under God or under myself, I don't know what he'd say. I swear. (laughs) And he begins to tell us why we're sinners. We're not dealing with human reason. We're, We're dealing with the Word of God. And I think that the message that we're going to look at today and next week is the message that we as Christians have to preach. We have to relate this to people. That there is sin and man is sinful and man is guilty as charged and he must come to the recognition of that before there can ever be a remedy. That's our introduction to our text. Look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9, we see here a couple of questions. And the first one is, what then? What then? That's the first question. Paul's asking these questions rhetorically, as we talked about last week. But he understands that his listeners are saying, okay, well, what's the situation here, Paul? What's the conclusion, all this stuff you're telling us? What are you driving at? Where are you going with this? What do you mean to say here? I mean, he's just condemned the immoral pagan. He's just condemned the moral religious man. He's condemned the Jew, the Gentile. He's condemned everybody at this point. There's nobody left standing. And so the question is, well, okay, what do we do now? 
You wiped everybody out, Paul, with your message here. What's next? And then he asked the question, are we any better off? If your translation has, as I read in the ESV, are we Jews any better off? It's probably not a good translation that they put that in there. It's not in the original text. So let's read it the way it was in the original. Are we any better off? That's really what it says. He asked this question rhetorically. Are we any better off than the immoral man, the moral man, or the Jew? So immediately you're saying, well, who, who is the we then? If it's not the Jew, who is it? Of whom is Paul speaking? A lot of commentators, you can read them, they'll say that it's Jews. He's including himself with the Jews. Are we Jews any better off? Because Paul was a Jew, but at this point he was also a Christian. I'll tell you why that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because, as we've studied in the last couple of weeks, he just finished the whole section on the Jews, right? He answered their question. Remember, we talked about the whole circumcision deal and them having the word of God, and that doesn't cut it. Did they have some advantages as Jews? Definitely. They were entrusted with the oracles of God, it says. But they chose to worship the book rather than the man of the book. And so they're held to a higher account. They're not excused. Some of you here this morning may think, oh, I've been taught since Sunday school and I know a lot about the Bible and I know this. Hey, God bless you. Do you understand that that brings a higher accountability of you before God? What do you mean? The more you know, the more God is going to hold you accountable for it. Oh. (laughs) It's like the new believer. Veronica was telling us that some of these teenagers are coming to Christ up on the reservation. And they were the ones that were asking her, why don't you have any kids? And when she said, well, you know, I'm waiting until I get married. Well, why would you do that? Well, let me show you. And she showed them in the Bible. And these are Christian kids. And immediately they said, wow, we've never seen that. You mean you should be married before you have children? Yeah. That's God's prescribed plan. Oh. See, things are changing now. The next day, if somebody asked them, is it a good thing to have children out of wedlock, somebody's going to say no. Based upon the word of God. We don't condemn those people. We just say it's not God's ideal. And so, he says here basically that, you know what? We... Are we any better off? I don't think he's talking about the Jews because he's already covered that section. He's not talking about the Gentiles because he wouldn't include himself in that section. Who could he be talking about? The only other group of people that he hasn't addressed yet are who? The believers in Rome. Who he's writing to. That's the only group. 
Nowhere else in the book of Romans does Paul say we and include himself with the Jews. Why would he do it here? And so he asks the question, are we any better off than these people? Now, some of you this morning as Christians may be sitting there going, well, definitely we are. I mean, we're Christians. We have a righteous standing before God. Are we any better off than the immoral pagan? Are we better off than the moral religious man or the religious Jew? All of them are condemned before God. Are we better off? The question he's asking is this. Are we some kind of elite group of people as Christians who are better off than anybody else? That's why we're Christians? By our nature? Are we better than the pagan? And that fits, really, back with verse 8. He says, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? So some people thought that Paul and his followers were saying, Oh, we're better than you. We're better than you. So they slandered them as a result. And so he gathers everybody up, and he asks the question, including the Christians, and he says, are we who are Christians by nature in ourselves any better than the rest of the condemned world? What's the answer? No, (laughs) not at all. Absolutely not. Altogether, in every way, absolutely, there's a finality to his answer. There's no possible way that we could be. He's gathered everybody up from the most vile, the most reprobate, homosexual, vice-ridden person to the one who assembles himself in the community of the believers. And that includes himself, beloved. And he says, none of us are any better off than any other one by ourselves, in our own human nature. We're all equally guilty before a holy God. Wow. And he says there, For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. He's already done that. He doesn't need to go through that again. He's already done it in chapter 2, chapter 1. That word there, already charged, is interesting because it's a legal term. It's used to designate a person previously indicted for a given assent, for a given offense. Already charged. It says that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. The original language there means to be totally under the power, under the authority, under the control of something or someone. That's the idea there. We're under the power of sin. Under the control of sin. The authority of sin. The dominion of sin. Who is? Everybody. Everybody. That all is an all-inclusive all. Everybody. 
There's nobody outside of that. Next time you run into your religious friend, your neighbor, your coworker, explain this to them. See what kind of reaction you get. It's not going to be a pleasant one, I guarantee it. You can go all the way back to see how the Jews reacted to this. They wouldn't accept it. I mean, the Lord confronted them over and over and over again. The apostles confronted them over and over again about being sinful. They wouldn't accept it. The Jews couldn't even enter their their realm of thought. In Galatians 2.15, Paul writes this, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. This is what they're saying. What are they saying? They're saying, we're not like the Gentiles. We're we're Jews by nature. We're in a different classification. The, The Gentiles, definitely they're sinners. Look over at John chapter 9 quickly. John 9. And this is where Jesus heals this man who's born blind. And it's an interesting confrontation with the Jewish leaders of the day. John chapter 9. Let's just read this. I'll read this for you. You can follow along in your, in your, your Bibles. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by Jesus and he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Wow, so God had a purpose in this man's blindness? What a horrible thing to think about. Think if your child was born blind. Could you honestly go to God and say, Hey, God has a purpose in this. This is kind of exciting. I'm going to see how God uses my little blind baby. But that's true. God can even use things like this for his purpose. Jesus answered, or verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, said to him, Go and wash in the the pool of Shalom, which means scent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. A miracle. Instantly. He didn't have glasses. Didn't have contacts. He didn't have to say, Well, yeah, I'm kind of seeing. You know, it's it's getting a little blurry, but it's, it's better than it was. No. Total sight restored. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, it just looks like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Shalom and wash. So I went and washed and recovered my sight. Received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. (laughs) Well, they brought the Pharisees to the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him, 
The Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. What are you not getting here? (laughs) It's rather simple. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. For if he does not keep, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, this poor guy, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? What's your assessment? He said, well, he's clearly a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? Verse 20, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and we know that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. We don't have a clue. We weren't there. Ask him. He's of age. He's standing right here. Just ask him. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, which is a big deal in that culture. If you're put out of the synagogue, you're socially basically isolated from everybody. Verse 23, therefore his parents said he is of age, ask him. In other words, we're not going to answer. We're not going to play into your little game here. So for the second time, verse 24, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Verse 25, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. That's above my pay grade. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered to them, well, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You know, the whole spit and mud story over and over again. Do you want also to become his disciples? (laughs) Maybe you guys want to follow up. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. Look at this. But we, you just hear them dripping in pride, religious pride. But we are disciples of Moses. And we know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, he does his will. God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And here's the whole point of why I turned you here to Romans 9. Look at verse 34. Look at how they answer this. Hear the pride. Hear the religiosity, the self-righteousness. They answered him, 
you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Despite all the testimony, despite all the witnesses, they didn't want to hear it. They didn't really care. They have something higher. They have something better. See, that's the way religious people feel. They really feel that way. And I'll tell you what, we have to be careful because even we who are Christians sometimes, we who are redeemed by Christ, sometimes we can begin to feel that way. That we're a little better off than everybody else. We didn't become Christians, beloved, because we're the cream of the crop. That's not what the Bible tells us. In a Christless state, every one of us is under the command, the control, the dominion, the authority of sin and Satan. That's clearly what the Bible teaches. There's no exceptions. So I think it's the Apostle John who says the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. That's so true. And yet we forget that at times. And if you don't admit it, if you can't bring yourself to admit that, yeah, I guess I am a sinner, then you've really reached the depth of your own self-deceit. You're delusional. We might like to make classifications of sinners. We put them in different categories. But you know what? It doesn't matter whether you're a cultured sinner or a vile sinner. They're they're sinners. And they will not stand before God. All men are under sin. Everybody in the human race is dragged into sin. If you look at this text, and we'll be looking at it again next week, in verse 9, you have the word all. All are under sin. And then down a little further in the, the preceding verses, or the, the, the verses that follow that, you see the word none, none, none. I mean, they're pretty exceptional terms he's using here. There's not a lot of gray area. All, none, those words mean something. What is the corruption? What is this? It's it's human depravity. That's what it is. And he turns to Scripture in verse 10 and he says, As it is written, I'm not telling you this, I'm going to turn to the Word of God and tell you this. And he begins to quote some of the Psalms. That's what Jesus did, right? When he was tempted, what did he do? He quoted Scripture. It's interesting as it is written, is in the perfect tense. What that means, it's, it's something that was written in time past and it has ongoing results, continuing results. Even though it was written way back then, it's a settled issue. It's part of the record. You can't change it. So what is this human depravity? Well, this is what Paul is explaining to us in Romans chapter 3. 
none righteous, not even one. That's total depravity is the theological term that we use. As opposed to what? Partial depravity? I don't know how you could read the text of Scripture and realize and not realize that you're totally depraved. Outside of Christ, there's nothing good in you. Nothing. Now, the people that like to paint a different picture of this would like to say that, well, you know, we believe that man is a sinner, but we do believe that there's a little bit of good in him so that when he's presented the gospel, if it's presented the right way and with enough passion and maybe the right track or whatever, that they can respond positively out of their will. There's enough good in them that they can kind of figure it out that this is a good thing to put my faith and trust in Christ and I'm going to put my faith and I'm going to trust Christ and I'm going to, and I'm going to, that's what you hear. You hear it all over the place. That's not what scripture teaches. And we're going to be going into next week what it means, the doctrine of total depravity, what exactly that means. You can read ahead in the outline and kind of get a gist of it, but we're going to do that next week. I'm trying to be sensitive to the kids in the, in the, um, the service, so I'm, I'm kind of squashing my, my, my sermons down a little bit anyway. Um, not doing a real good job at that, but trying to cut them off about 40, 45 minutes just because we have our children in the services for the month of August. Doesn't mean we're going to miss anything. We're going to come right back next week and pick this up right there. But don't think for a second that you're not totally depraved. Because you are, and so am I. And so is everyone. The only person who ever lived on this earth who wasn't was our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we we pray that we would understand that we are truly guilty as charged before you. Lord, we just, just barely scratched the surface this morning. But Father, as we ponder this idea that we are depraved in our human nature and the corruption that dwells within our own evil hearts, Father, how much more that causes us to run to you as our Savior. How much more that causes us to run to your grace, to your mercy. Because we know that we stand before you convicted. There's only one way out of this courtroom, you might say. And it's not by going through the trial. Trying to convince the other side that you're right. Because if we were to do that, we would be wrong. It's better just to acknowledge it. It's better just to turn to God as the man in the New Testament who was so rattled by his own sin that he couldn't even put a couple words together. But he cried out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what God wants to hear from you. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. If you understand the fact that, you know what, you are depraved in God's sight, that you are a sinner and that you need the grace that Christ so freely offers. That's the first step. The first step is acknowledging that. The second step is crying out to God for mercy to help you to believe the truth of the gospel. We pray that you would do your work in each heart here this morning. Help us to leave here as Christians with a kind of an encouraged, stronger 
bolder testimony of the gospel to people who do not know you. Yeah, this message is offensive. It's not something people like to hear, but it's the truth. And when we share it in love, when we share it with concern for their heart and their soul, I think God does a work in their heart to allow them to hear it and to even desire, draw them onto him. Father, we thank you. We, we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.